Okay, we're going to get started. I'd like to invite you back to your seats. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. We're glad that you're here with us this morning, especially if you're a guest with us. Welcome to Providence Road. We are honored that you would choose to spend a Sunday morning with us. Uh, we're continuing on in our series that we started last week, going through the book of 1 Corinthians. I'm going to start in verse 10 today, and I'll read through verse 17. Paul says this, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is a quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Paulos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we, like we do every week here, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've revealed yourself to us in your word. We have your words. They're, they're living and they're active. And when we're choosing our songs and, and thinking about what, what we want to pray through and what we want to preach through on a Sunday morning, we don't have to, 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 to dream something up. We don't have to get overly creative and think about what to say. We can go to your word because you've revealed yourself in your word. And we, we're thankful for that. I pray today that your spirit would, would speak through me. Um, these would be your words and not my words. And that you would be honored above everything else this morning. Change us this morning, spirit. We ask that you would come, change our minds and our hearts, and change us as we leave this place. It's in your son's name we pray. pray. Amen. So, like we mentioned, uh, like I mentioned last week, as we are um, going through this book, um, the, one, of the, one of the main reasons why Paul writes this letter, the reason, one of the reasons why we have it in the scriptures, that there is a mess of a time happening at the church in Corinth. It's a mess. Um, last week we ran through some of these things, but we're going to come to several issues as we move uh, forward in this letter. There was um, things like a man was having an incestual relationship in this church, a member of the church. Um, there were people getting drunk during the worship service on the communion wine. Um, people in the church, members of the church, were not really believing the resurrection. One of the key tenets of our faith, they weren't believing it. And these are major issues in the church. But Paul, like we're going to see today, doesn't start to address these things with those things. He addresses something totally different first. Now, if I'm planting churches and I get word back that these kinds of things are happening in a church that was planted, my f gut instinct is going to be a attack these things first. We need to talk about these things first because these things are, these things are bad. There's some major, major sin going on in this church. But Paul, here in verse 10, we see that that's not where he starts. He's going to start with unity. He's going to start with divisions in this church. And what that should tell us is that the, the idea of unity, the idea of divisions in, in the church is uh, foundational to all the other things. 
He's going to get to these other things. We'll get there. But he starts off when all those things are on his mind, because he's already heard about these things as he's writing this letter. He knows, but he chooses to start with unity. Now, there's a really good illustration that I have about um, when I was thinking about unity this week in light of everything that happened uh, with, with Kobe Bryant this week. And before I get into that illustration, that example, I want to take a quick rabbit trail. And just, um, it has struck me this week about the, the outpouring and how Kobe Bryant's passing, his death, has affected so many people. Now, if you didn't know, Kobe Bryant passed away in a, in a tragic accident last weekend, um, if, if you've been living in a deep, deep cave. Um, and I say that because it's been astonishing as I've just watched the news unfold about how um, how people have been moved by this. People who aren't even sports fans and people who, and, and, and so I've, I've kind of been asking the question, well, why is this? Why, is, why are people so moved by the death of Kobe Bryant? And one pastor tweeted a few things out this week, and I think he's dead on. And I think it's because when we were created, we were created in, in the Garden of Eden there, and we had a face-to-face relationship with the transcendent God. And our sin comes into the world, and that relationship um, has never been the same. We don't see God clearly now as human beings. And so we've lost that idea of transcendence. So when something, somebody like Kobe, who's the best of the best at what he does, this could be an athlete, this could be a musician, entertainer, whatever, but someone who's iconic and he's just beyond so much better than everyone else at his craft, I think what happens is we get a small taste of that transcendence. We see somebody do what someone does at such a high level. I think as a human being, it's hardwired into us just to be captivated by that. We're blown away by what this guy could do. And I didn't, and I was, I was even struck by it a little bit. And I didn't even really even like the guy when he played. He was on a rival team. I didn't like the Lakers. I didn't really, I didn't really care for him. But now I, I, as I reflect on and how he's had that transcendence, it's, um, it's interesting. And I think it's because we get a glimpse of the creator. And he, when he creates someone like Kobe, who does something so well, because we, we, we feel bad for his family, obviously, and we feel bad when in, for anybody's family when they pass, but there's just been something different this week about Kobe Bryant passing and how it's brought people together that don't agree on anything, but they agree in, in, in how great he was and they're mourning him. And so I thought that was just interesting, and I know that's a rabbit trail, but for the illustration today, we, Kobe played with this uh, guy named Shaquille O'Neal during his career with the Lakers. And they were one of the best teams of all time when they were together. And in the, in the 2000s, um, they won three cha- NBA championships in a row. And most people think had they stayed together, they could have won many, many more and probably been the greatest team of all time as far as championships won. And, but the issue was, is they weren't unified. There was d- division on the team. And, th- and these problems were there from the beginning. If you read stories and read books about the Lakers during this time, they didn't really get along from the very beginning, Kobe and Shaq didn't. Um, there were always issues under the surface, but they had their sights on the main thing. They were united by trying to win a championship. And that, as long as their eyes were focused on winning a championship, they did it. And they were great at it. And they did it three years in a row. But once they kind of took their eyes off of that, personalities became more important. They wanted to get their due. They wanted to get their accolades more than anyone else. And then a few short years after they had this run of three titles in a row, um, Shaq gets traded. Uh, Phil Jackson, who was the coach, he steps away. And Kobe was the only one who was left. And now 
the Lakers went on to win another championship, um, but they would never be the same. They would never be as dominant as they were during those three years because once they took their eyes off that main goal of winning a title, then all these other things that were always there, but now they became a bigger deal and it fractured and it splintered and they ended up basically dissolving that team. And so this is just, I think, an example, and, and I use Kobe because Kobe's on most of our minds, I think, and has been this week to some degree. But I want to go back to how, how important Paul thinks biblical unity is. He starts this letter with all of those things happening, and he wants to make sure everyone is together, that they're united, and that they're keeping the main thing the main thing. So really two things we're going to look at today as we walk through this passage. One, why biblical unity is so important and why there's so much emphasis uh, placed on it by Paul. And two, how can we actually be more unified as a church? Providence wrote. Okay, so let's look at 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1. This is uh, verse 10 here, the first verse here. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, and this is just a form. It's, it's, that encapsulates everyone. It could be translated brothers and sisters. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you would be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So Paul here, what he's asking for, and most commentators think that this verse is the, the thesis verse for the whole book. So 15 uh, chapters, 16 chapters, I should say, in, in 1 Corinthians, and this is the primary verse where everything comes out of, okay? Because the primary theme of Paul in this letter is unity. Unity around the gospel. Okay, so he asks them here, he appeals to them. This is strong language. He appeals to them, um, and it says here that they would all agree. Now, it's not agree in the sense that I think we would typically uh, think of agree. It's more to, to, to have the same mind or to speak the same thing. It really means alignment. He wants them to be aligned, and he clarifies that um, even in the next line where he says, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Having the same mind, having the same judgment. That word for united there really means having been knit together. So united, think of, it's kind of a, a, a big word, and maybe we think of the United States. And I think that's a good example of how you have these diverse, different kinds of states, but they're tied together. They're knitted together by some, some, some values and some things that are bigger than any one state brings to the table. Okay, so big deal here, unity not being divisive. Paul says, I appeal to you. Don't have divisions among you. Be united. Now, what does this mean? What does biblical unity mean? Well, let's go back to um, the beginning of the scriptures and do a quick overview of a few verses here of when the Bible speaks of unity, what is it actually talking about? Well, Genesis 1, 26, listen to what God says when he's creating man and woman. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. There's a plural there, our, our, so it means it's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit there before anything was, was, was created saying, let us, so it's plural, make man in our own image. What it means is, is that before, before anything was created, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit had perfect unity and community and fellowship together. It was perfect. And they were, there was three, pers- three persons in one. That's the Trinity, right? So they had this perfect um, connection, perfect unity together. And then he says, let us make man in our own image, right? So in the image that he's made us in is this image built for community, for unity. So when we were made from the very beginning, we were made for community. 
We were made to be unified to other people. And then shortly later in Genesis 12, we see God call Abram. And that's the calling where God starts to make a people for himself. He wants the people to be unified around the law and the character of God. So people would be um, unified and together and the world around them as they live life together, they would see um, a little bit of who God was and be able to give glory and honor to who God was based off of how the Israelites lived. In Deuteronomy 6, 4, um, um, uh, there's some teaching here that's about to happen, but it starts with this line. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Once again, it's the Trinity. It's the Father, Son, and Spirit, but the, the, the God is reiterating that the God is one. There's one. Yes, there's three persons, but it's one, right? He's one. And then in John 17, we move over to the New Testament. This is Jesus and this, this prayer he's praying to God shortly before he would go to the cross, talking about his disciples, that they, the disciples, may be one. This is you and I. This is Christians as well. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. There's that Trinity language again. That they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So he's saying, I want the world to know who I am. I want them, the world to know that I've sent them. And the way that's going to happen is if they're unified, if they live in community as close as, and think about how mind-blowing this is, that, that the Father and Jesus are united through the Trinity. And that's the level of unity he wants his followers to have with each other. And then in Galatians 3.28, Paul writes this. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. All throughout the scriptures, this is a theme. And in Galatians here, what Paul is saying, that even things that are so divisive, like Jew and Greek, those were two huge categories that, don't, that didn't mix. Male and female, slave and free. Like, like he doesn't want factions and divisions to happen even around these things. Even around these big identities, like male and female. He doesn't want all the males going together and all the females going together. He wants there to be unity across these lines. And this is how important, once again, unity is to God and unity is to Paul in this passage, okay? So let's quickly go through the rest of these verses. Verse 11. So he says that there's divisions. He's asking that there not be divisions. And then he's telling them how, kind of how he knows that, that there are divisions. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people. Now, Chloe must be important, right? Because she's got people, right? Like, I don't have people, but Chloe's got people, right? So Chloe's got some people. And if we go to, if we look through the book of Acts and in the book of uh, Ephesians, Chloe um, lived in Ephesus. She's a, 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 um, one of the first converts in Ephesus and an influencer in the church. She was a businesswoman. And what probably happened is she would bounce around from different cities in the Roman Empire doing her business. And she was probably visiting Corinth and went back to Ephesus. And Paul was in Ephesus more than likely when he wrote this. So she's going back to Paul saying, hey, I just came from Corinth. Let me tell you about some things that I'm hearing about some things that I, I'm observing about the church there. So Paul trusted her. So he says, Chloe's people, they, there's quarreling among you, my brothers. There's quarreling, you're fighting, there are divisions. Okay, and this goes back to the, really the purpose of writing the letter, right? Paul's catching wind of things happening in the church. And it's not just this, this particular issue we're gonna look at today. It's a lot of the issues that are brought up in this, in this letter come from Chloe and her report back to Paul. Okay, they're quarreling. There's divisions among you. Verse 12. 
What I mean, so he's going to explain specifically what he's talking about here at least. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, which is another name for Peter, or I follow Christ. Then in rhetorically, he asks these three questions. Is Christ divided? He's not really wanting an answer there. It's rhetorical, right? Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So he's trying to make his point how ridiculous it is that they are grabbing onto these church leaders and, and, and kind of creating these, these fan clubs along the lines of these church leaders. Now, it, it seems like, again, these people didn't do anything wrong as far as the leaders. Apollos, Peter, Paul puts himself in there here. So it's not that these leaders are doing anything wrong. It's how the people of Corinth are using their, their role and their giftedness to create these little factions and divisions where they're kind of talking about, hey, uh, my, my guy's awesome, I follow Apollos. Or my guy's Peter, he's really great. And they start comparing how awesome their, their guy is to the other people. And, and again, Paulos, um, historians tell us and the scriptures tell us that he was, he was a really gifted speaker. He was a really gifted communicator, probably better than Paul. And so people maybe were following Apollos based off how gifted and smooth the communicator he was. Again, he was just teaching the Bible and preaching, but he was really, really good at it. So they, were, they liked him for that. Then you have Peter, obviously he's, he's a Jewish person. So obviously the people who were converts who were, who were Jewish probably leaned towards Peter. He was one of them. So they kind of followed him. And Paul had his own little followers here, it seems like. And so there's these factions and divisions happening in um, this church. And Paul, before they get too, too big and they start to split a little bit, he wants to stop it. He's saying, cut it out. Like, this is ridiculous. This is silly what you all are doing here. And, and it doesn't happen as much in our church, but I think um, it can kind of, the, the parallel can kind of be drawn to maybe this, the podcast culture, right? Like we all have like maybe our favorite people we like listening to. So I'm a, I'm a this guy, or I'm a this girl, or I like, I like her, or I like him as I listen. Or maybe it's the idea of, of, of church hopping, right? Like you hop to different churches for a season to unite yourself with a particular brand name or a church or a leader, right? Or, um, or, or yeah, or, or we build up our particular church in like a city of Norman, we build up our church maybe to the exclusion of other churches. Like I go to this church and it's awesome and you should hear my pastor and you should hear the worship music here. Again, there's nothing wrong with liking that stuff, but if you start to divide along those lines, if you start to create divisions based off how awesome your person is, then it can create, um, diver, I mean, uh, divisions along, I think, churches in the city's lines, but especially can happen inside of one church. Because I don't think that's occurring right now in our church, but I think uh, there's some application just outside of our church, okay? And so really what he's saying here, he's, he's thinking like, if, if, if Jews and, and Gentiles can make this thing work, right? Like Jews and Gentiles, like two of the most opposite groups you could have, based off religious lines, political lines, cleanliness laws, I mean, socioeconomic status, all of those things, these two groups were divided more than any groups could be divided. And yet a lot of the New Testament is about these two groups coming together, united in Christ and kind of laying aside those former identities and allegiances. So Paul's like, if that can work in his mind, if, if this works, then surely you have, you fanboying over these leaders. It's ridiculous. Stop it. This is what Paul is thinking. Okay. And some of you guys have maybe grown up in the church and you've been, you, you've witnessed church splits 
and how painful and awful a church split is. And oftentimes it does damage inside the church. It does damage to the name of Jesus. And oftentimes um, those things are based off of really silly things. Stories I've heard about this that start with the silliest things. And again, if the Jews and the Greeks, Gentiles could figure this thing out, then we really shouldn't be splitting over anything. Now, if, if, if divisions arise, maybe if the person who's stirring the pot in each of these camps, maybe they do need to be dismissed and leave. But churches shouldn't split. That's not what the church was, was, was created for. But there may be people that have to be removed in those specific situations. But let's continue. Uh, verse 14. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. And you can imagine just Paul like writing here and he's like, oh yeah, well, maybe this, but hey, I don't know. I don't, I don't know who I baptized. You can see it's very raw. It's like he's really writing a letter. It is Paul writing this letter. And Paul is not minimizing baptism in general here, right? He's not diminishing baptism or the importance of it. What he's saying is in the big picture, he's, and he'll, we'll see it in verse 17 here, I came to preach the gospel, Paul said. The gospel is the primary thing here and the gospel unifies and it unites. So if you are dividing over who baptized you, then I don't really care. And I'm kind of glad that I didn't baptize many of you so I don't have to put up with these little fan clubs that are starting. That's really what Paul is saying here. He's not minimizing baptism, but he is saying that you know, more than likely baptism, it is a public thing, right? And you had these leaders who would gather their people probably to baptize them. So it was, a, it was kind of a public spectacle. So you could see where this idea of, of baptism was becoming, yeah, I was baptized today. I want you to come to my baptism. This guy's doing the baptisms, right? Paul's saying, no, 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 it's not important. It's not important for this conversation. You guys need to stop being divided over this. And ultimately, what he's saying here is, What's most important is the message and the one who the message is about, the gospel and Jesus, not the messenger. Yeah, Apollos is doing his job, right? That's what he's called to do. Peter, that's what he's called to do. It's what I'm called to do, Paul says, but don't follow me. Like follow Jesus. Consider the message, not the messenger. And that's good. That's a good word for anybody who is in ministry preaching the gospel. Last verse, verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Again, it's not saying baptism is not important. It's saying my primary purpose is to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. That last line there, we're going to talk about that in two weeks. Um, The beginning of chapter two, Paul talks about this idea of, of, of eloquent wisdom and power. We're going to dig into that in two weeks. So we're not going to get into that today. But what he ultimately we see here is he starts with unity in verse 10. Hey, don't be divisive. And then in verse 17, hey, here's the big purpose, right? Like I came to preach the gospel. The gospel is the main thing. The good news of who Jesus is and what he has done. That is what unifies you. That's what is going to keep everyone on the same track. It's what's going to keep you from being divided over silly issues. Remember the gospel. And remember the gospel's purposes in the world. That's why I have come. So he wants to, again, align them around the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what really the purpose of this whole book is. Now, I mentioned we were created for community. We're created for unity. When sin comes into the world, our relationships are messed up. They're fractured. We, 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 we fight with one another. I, I have conflict with uh, my wife, Nicole, right? Because there's sin in the world. And we're both selfish people. And that's just the way it is. 
Like even on a macro level, we see countries fight with one another. There's wars, right? Because of sin. So we were made for unity and community and fellowship. Sin comes into the world and now that becomes really, really hard. But when we're saved, when we put our faith in Jesus and we believe the gospel, we are saved into community. It's really important for us as an individualistic culture. No, when we are saved, we're saved into community. You're not saved as an isolated individual over here, over there. You are saved into a body of, of Christians, the followers of Jesus. And that, that global body is expressed in the local church. So actually when you are saved, it's not, hey, I'm saved and then I'm going to figure out a church to join and then you become a part of a community. Theologically, when you're saved, you are part of a community right then. You are saved and you have brothers and sisters in Christ. And then you're also transformed by this community. So you're saved into a community. And then as you live this Christian life, one of the biggest tools God uses to help you grow and to find freedom and joy is other brothers and sisters in Christ. When you commit yourself to other brothers and sisters, that's how God grows you and matures you. Um, in your faith, okay? So this is how that, that idea of community plays out all throughout the gospel story. Now, to kind of, the last part of our time here, I want to look at a few things. This is, um, the, these, these things I'm going to list here were part of a book called The Gospel-Centered Community by two guys by the name of Bob Thune and Will Walker. And in this um, particular book, um, they have uh, a list of things that are, they call them barriers to unity, barriers to community or even um, kind of um, enemies that, that individualism brings to this. Okay, so here's the, I'm going to list four here and I'm going to talk through these and we're all guilty of at least one of these. I am. As, even as I was reading through these this week, I, I, I know I'm guilty of these things, but these are the things I think that keep us from being unified and you can see the Corinthians throughout this letter, they're going to be guilty of all of these things at one time or another. So let's walk through these. Uh, self-reliance. Okay, self-reliance and they'll be on the screen. Self-reliance. Um, if you struggle with self-reliance, um, you probably don't feel like you need other people to grow in your faith. You're like, I got this, no big deal. I can do my own thing at home and I really don't need other followers of Jesus. Which means you're overconfident in your own ability to change. You're overconfident in your own ability to change. And then it's gonna be hard for you to be vulnerable when you do get thrust into community, vulnerable about your struggles, vulnerable about your past, vulnerable about your, your baggage because you've kind of put forward this, this, this image of self-reliance. Because if you're a, I got this kind of person, you're never going to be able to be vulnerable if that's the kind of a posture you have. It may be really easy for you to help others, to like give yourself away and use your gifts, but you're not going to be very good at receiving blessing and love from others. Because you're, you're kind of like, I got this, which you can imagine how that would actually put a, a wall in between you and others. If you're like, I got this, then why do you need others, brothers and sisters around you in this life? And, and the reason this is contrary to even the gospel is that everything about the gospel says you can't do it yourself. You can't save yourself. The reason why Jesus did all the work he did was because we couldn't save ourselves. So like, we, part of becoming a follower of Jesus is humbling ourselves saying, I'm a sinful human being and I need your grace, God. Help me, save me. And so once we're followers of Jesus, we shouldn't switch over into this self-reliance mode where it's like, yeah, I don't need anybody else. I'm good. No, that's, that's how you were saved is because you didn't think you were good enough. Okay, so this is contrary to the gospel. So we need to preach that, uh, yeah, I, I, I can't do it on my own. 
I'm not Superman. I'm not Superwoman. Like, I'm not going to live this Christian life to the degree that I could and find freedom and joy without the help of brothers and sisters. Next one, self-protection. Self-protection. Maybe you keep people at arm's length um, because you're afraid to be rejected. Maybe you have a a pastor's story where you've been burned by Christians or burned by the church. Or maybe you let your guard down and you were taken advantage of because of that. And I'm sorry um, that's happened. Um, But to have vulnerable biblical community, um, we have to work towards healing of that. Um, if you're this maybe kind of person, take this posture, you think things like, if people knew the real me, they wouldn't like me anymore. If people really knew my story, they wouldn't accept me anymore. Again, that's a lie from Satan. That's not true. Um, the, the church is a place where we can all be vulnerable and not need to protect ourselves. You may fear conflict because conflict can get messy and you're afraid of what others may think of you if you get into a conflict. So you're just going to keep everybody at arm's length. Kind of protect yourself, protect yourself from getting involved in relationships and kind of everything will work out. And the problem with this, according to the gospel, is that uh, Jesus is the one who's already suffered rejection for your behalf. Why are you protecting yourself when Jesus has done all of that for you? He's gone to the cross. He suffered. He's taken the lashes. He has faced death and conquered death. The worst thing we could be scared of, death, he's already conquered it. So we wouldn't have to be self-protected. And I'll walk around trying to protect our image and not let people in. Like Jesus and what he's done, he allows us to be open-handed with our stories. Say, this is who I am. I'm a mess. I need help. And in a church, it's like we're, we're all a mess, right? There, that's a reason why we're Christians, because we admitted that we're a mess and we need help. And we're all in process of becoming less of a mess. It's called sanctification. So why do we protect ourselves and hide from one another when it's obvious that no one's perfect? And we all have our baggage and we need each other to overcome and heal in those areas. Next one, self-importance. Um, maybe you see yourself more important than you ought to. Um, Maybe the, 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 you let the busyness of your schedule um, take the place of deep, meaningful relationships. Like, I just got too much going on. I can't invest in those relationships. My life is too busy. My life is too crazy. And more times than not, everyone else is in the church is the same craziness, right? Like, we all feel crazy in this day and age. We all feel too busy probably to do the hard work of investing in deep relationships. That's just things that take work, which relationships do. We're going to automatically think, oh, that just seems like a lot of work. I don't have the energy. I don't have the time to give to those relationships. If you're this person, you may want the respect of others. You may want other people to like you, but you're really not willing to invest deeply in other people um, because like your, your things are more important. It's that idea of self-importance. And in the gospel we see is easy as this. We had to deny ourselves to admit that we needed Jesus. You said, deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. Right? There's, some, there's, there's, there's an element of sacrifice to, on the road to freedom and joy. And if we want to experience freedom and joy, and have true community where people love us and love us at our worst, then we have to move into that, and that's uncomfortable. We have to see ourselves as a little bit less important to get there. But that is the pathway to freedom and joy, to, that, that I may, I may um, decrease so Jesus may increase. Okay? And the last one, self-will. Um, self-will, you tend to maybe set your schedule um, and fill just your time and your life with your wants and needs first, rather than considering what are the church's wants and needs? What are my brothers and sisters' wants and needs? 
Um, How does my time and my schedule affect the mission of the church and what God's called the church to do? And maybe you kind of put all those things from your calendar on there first and your time. And then wherever you can squeeze relationships in, you maybe squeeze into those. I think this is maybe where the consumer mindset comes in too much. We all have a little bit of this in us, um, but maybe you ask questions a lot like, what am I going to get out of this church? Like, what am I getting out of this community really? What, what do I, how do I feel when I come to this or experience this? Again, those questions aren't bad, but th- if those are the primary governing decisions on everything, then you're never going to be happy. You're never going to be happy. And you're always going to choose the next thing because you're thinking something else is going to be better instead of saying, oh, wait, like I, I believe in this group of people. I want to give myself to this group of people. I want to, I want to allow them to serve me and me serve them. And I believe in the mission of this particular church and what God's called us to do. That's a part of, of uh, kind of, of, of being kind of focused on self or having a self will. And we know from the gospel that this is again, contrary to Christianity. Like if, if you believe that you have to hold on to your stuff then that's going to give you freedom and joy. Um, It's not. That's an empty promise. You have to give your life away. You have to be open-handed with your resources for God to to give you blessing and to give you freedom and joy and to allow you to grow and mature in those kinds of things. And so all of these four things will get in the way of us really experiencing deep biblical community. And honestly, they'll get in the way of all of us, even as individuals, take the community out of it, even as individuals in knowing and loving and obeying Jesus. These are all, I think, enemies for all of us. And just things we need to be thinking about. Hey, this is, if you find yourself, well, I'm not experiencing community right now. Or I don't feel like I have brothers and sisters that I'm like in the fight with and they can, can walk alongside of this li- with me in this life. Maybe it's one of these four things that you need to work through and think about that you're maybe unaware of, okay? So this is kind of the barriers or enemies to community. And, and, and again, Part of this is, is taking a step, right? Taking a step where you feel like you're going to have to step outside of your comfort zone. Because again, it's easy to be loving when everyone around you is really loving, right? Like if it's easy to be loving to others, if you just surround yourself with people who are easy to love, it's easy to be humble, right? If you surround yourself with people who think you're awesome, right? I mean, it's, it's easy. Like, oh yeah, yeah, I get it. It's, I'm, I'm, I mean, it's, it's like when you're really treated like someone who's not awesome, then your humility gets tested. And then the spirit has a chance to work inside of you to really help you grow and mature in your faith. That's the beauty about true community. It's gonna reveal your sin. It's gonna reveal your brokenness. It's gonna reveal your weaknesses, your wounds, the parts of your story that you're afraid of as you get to know one another in community. And that is scary. And it's scary, but don't, we don't wanna go through life having to hide and protect ourselves and, and pretend to be people we're not because there's no freedom in that. The freedom is, is laying all that stuff on the table. We're like, I am a messed up sinner who's been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, by his grace. And now I'm free to be the person who's, yes, I'm still a mess, but I'm in process. And I want you all to help me continue on in that process. That is biblical community. And here's what I want to make sure we're saying here, because Paul is talking to the church, right? So this is what he's not talking about here, okay? A few things. Um, This doesn't mean um, uh, hobbies you do with your friends, that's not biblical community. It doesn't mean being around people that you like to be around. That's not necessarily biblical community. Um, it's not your favorite live stream church service that you watch at home. That is not biblical community. College students, your frat, your sorority, even your campus ministry is not necessarily biblical community. 
okay? Biblical community um, first and foremost starts in the church. Paul is writing to the church here. He's writing to the church, not other kind of brothers and sisters who grab on to each other to do different things. He's talking to the church. Again, those, all those things, those aren't bad. But if we say, that's my biblical community, well, that's not the church. And that's not who Paul is talking about here. And what I'm trying to do is raise the bar, maybe for some of you, for church and the, the, the importance of the local church and the, the, the importance that the, the God places on the local church in, um, in the scriptures. And this is where church membership fits in. We're a big church membership church. We you saw the announcement this morning. We have um, the church membership class coming up in a couple of weeks. So some of you all need, if you feel like you're Want to be a part of Providence Road long term? You need to go to that class and at least ask questions and figure out maybe why you're a little bit hesitant to jump in to church membership if you haven't yet. Because what church membership does, it creates this accountable covenant um, based relationship where we say, I want to be with these people to do the mission that this church is called. And I'm going to give myself relationally to these brothers and sisters because that's what the Bible's called us to do. And I know that's going to be a part of, of me finding freedom and joy. Sam Perry preached a sermon, um, last sermon in, in, in 2019. I encourage you to go back and listen to it if you were out of town that week. But he talked about confrontation and how do we biblically confront one another and challenge one another in our faith inside the church. And this is a big part of, of being accountable. Because again, it's hard to be challenged by someone personally if I don't know I'm in covenant with you. And if you're not really a part of this church, it's hard for me to receive that challenge. But if you're in, if you're a part of the church, if you believe in what we're doing, yeah, I, I, I'm going to grow and I need to receive that challenge. I need to receive that accountability. Again, church membership provides this context to have these true, meaningful relationships. Again, those other things aren't bad, but they shouldn't take the place of a church. And that's, I think that's what Paul would say this, because again, these letters are written to churches, not, not those other things. And I'll say this to close. I think this applies... Uh, uh, not necessarily first, but I, I, we've treated it to, like it applies to Providence Road, the church, making sure we're unified and there aren't divisions. And that is true. But this also applies, I think, to the church in Norman, the greater church in Norman. The only thing I've been con- you know, convicted about this week that I don't think about enough is how are we being unified or how are we unified with other churches? Because if Paul was writing to the church in Norman, I'm guessing he would get after us a little bit saying, you guys are all doing your own little things. Like I follow this church or this is my brand or I wear this bumper sticker on the back of my car. Or, I have this yard sign and my sign. This is who I'm affiliating with. More so than we're affiliating with Jesus. More so than we're affiliating with the gospel. Again, being a church, I just said being a church member is important. So I'm not saying you should be a member of the church and love your church. That's not what I'm saying. But if, if you're saying those things with expense to all the other churches, Norman, I think that's a problem. So something that I'm, I've been convicted about this week and something that I'm praying about, how can we begin to build um, stronger and, and more bridges to other churches, Norman? I think this also applies there. So this isn't just a Providence Road thing. I think this is a church being united in Norman thing as well that I'm have been convicted about, honestly, this week and something that I'm going to continue to pray through and how we can be more a part of that. Uh, Let's pray, and then we're going to move into a time of communion. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you for this book of 1 Corinthians and even how it was written out of a a more frustrated um, pastor and frustrated church planner and Paul wanting to make sure that um, this church in Corinth was um, honoring you. And that by um, not being unified, um, they, they were um, doing damage to your name and doing damage to your glory. And they, and they weren't experiencing the fruits of the Spirit. 
if all these things are going on. And so I thank you just in your sovereignty that you have uh, books like this in your scripture. We can learn from, we can be humbled by. And I pray though, like we said last week, that we don't look at the Corinthians and say, oh wow, they were really messed up and we're not messed up. I think we're, we're all uh, prone to divisions. We're prone to going our separate ways, even individually, but also as a church. So I pray that you would help us, help us be more unified and not just not be divided and not just, hey, we're not on the verge of a church split. That's, that's one thing, but even being more unified. How can we grow in our unity? How can we grow in our relationships with our brothers and sisters? Because unity is more than the absence of conflict. There's something positive to it. It's, it's, it's strong. It's beneficial. It's honoring, God-honoring. It's gospel-centered. I pray that you would bring about those things through the power of your spirit. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.